Gospels, we get the original unsanitized version of this story. In Matthew, the story is softened by Matthew. He has the mother's boy, or the boy's mother, ask the question. Perhaps he's a little embarrassed for James and John and felt that such a request was unworthy of a disciple. And so once again, a woman becomes the scapegoat. We haven't seen that before, but that's another sermon. As Barbara Brown Taylor suggests, James and John, these sons of a successful middle-class fisherman, Zebudee, seem to believe that the new world will be set up just like the old world, just with new leadership. And the bad guys at the top will be removed, their thrones will be reupholstered, and God's new leadership will be seated on the throne with Jesus in the number one position and the most loyal members of his campaign staff on either side of him. Once this change has been accomplished, then finally at last, the good people will commence to redeem the world from the top down. This is a trickle-down gospel, and as Will Williman says, it's feeding the horse so the birds can eat. Think about that. And one more time, Jesus tries to tell them and us, it doesn't work that way. He's been trying to get this across to them for quite a while now, and if you read some of the previous chapters to our text, you'll see stories of a rich young ruler who wants to take his riches with him, but also wants to be part of the kingdom. You see some disciples who try to chase away the children, keep them away from Jesus. They make too much noise in the sanctuary. They run around and they disturb my worship. They should be seen and not heard like I was when I was a kid. And yet Jesus welcomes the noise and says, this is what the kingdom is like. It's alive with life. It makes us smile. Everything and everyone belongs. But the disciples, perhaps like us, tend to ask, what's in it for me? Who is the greatest? When does it get better? I want my comfort. I want some predictability. And Jesus suggests to us that these are the wrong questions. He is tempted by those questions in the Garden of Gethsemane. But over and over again, he arises to that place in God where he understands that these are not the questions we should ask. Instead, in the next chapter, next week's gospel passage, in a very chaotic scene, Jesus asks a hysterical blind man and us, what would you like me to do for you? The new world is not remotely like the old one. It turns the old one upside down. The real leaders are not the powerful ones enjoying themselves at the head of the table. They are the quiet ones, slipping in and out among the guests, refilling wine glasses, laying down clean silverware for the next course. The great ones are not the dignitaries to the left and right of the ruler. They are the servants who are stirring the pots in the kitchen, checking the ovens, stoking the fires so that the food and the space is neither too hot nor too cold for the honored guests who have walked off the streets of life. We were reminded of this at our clergy conference this week. 
our speaker reminded us that God calls us as priests because he doesn't trust us to be lay people. We're often too impatient. Too, and some of our key lay people think that is absolutely hysterical. We're too involved with ourselves. We're too entitled. We're too sure that we have all the answers for everyone else. And our Hebrew passage wonderfully addresses this when it says that every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He or she is able to deal gently with others, lay people, since he or she himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he or she must offer sacrifice for his or her own sins, as well as for those of the people. But James and John want Jesus to just hurry up and become king of the world, a glory that they can possibly share in. And yet Jesus has other things on his mind. Has everyone been served? Is all the food on the table? Does anyone need anything? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet we still tend to ask, what's in it for me? We have heard this upside-down teaching so many times in our lives, but it so easily gets lost in us. The back of the line is the best place to be. The lowliest job is the one to aspire to. Those who serve are luckier than those in power, and, love of, and lovers of God get less status, not more. And this attitude is unacceptable in our world. That's not how the system works. But Jesus is continually letting us and the disciples know that Christianity isn't a boot camp for the upwardly mobile. It's a boot camp for servanthood. This isn't do your time as a servant with no whining and win two good seats in the kingdom to come. How easily we forget. Jesus is also not pretending to be the great servant until the time comes for him to whip off his cover and climb onto his throne. He is a servant through and through. He is not in it for the reward. He is in it for the love of God, which promises him nothing but the opportunity to give himself away. And as one preacher put it, the best seat that Jesus will get out of this side of the grave is a throne full of splinters. And when he is hung on it to dry by the powers that be, it will not be James and John on either side of him, but two unnamed bandits, one on his left and one on his right. This is the cup and baptism that Jesus invites us to participate in. Henri Nouwen, in his lovely little book called In the Name of Jesus, reflects on the nature of leadership in the Christian community. One of our greatest temptations, he says, is to choose the way of power as an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Look at our politics. Look at our world. It seems easier now in rights to be God than to love God. It seems easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. C.S. Lewis, in his fascinating allegory, The Great Divorce, suggests that earth dangles between heaven and hell gently. And that how we live 
life determines in which ultimate place we will feel the most comfortable. He suggests that we get to choose. However, we may not feel like we've had a choice. We will likely experience our choice as God's judgment or, our, or God's reward. And he suggests that it's either our despair or our pride that keep us from heaven. Pride will make it difficult to give something up. Despair will make us feel unworthy. And both are a refusal of grace. Both will make it seem like God is doing this to us. However, if we live a life of servanthood, we will choose beyond the limits of our temptation of pride or despair. In the Lucan story of the rich young ruler in Lazarus, here we have this rich man who has been whining and dining himself and his friends and living the high life, totally oblivious to this poor starving servant sitting right outside the fence of his home. And now in his experience of hell, he somehow has a glimpse into the heavens. He can see it. He can see that there's a possibility there of something parching his torment. And yet he still doesn't get it. He sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham and says, what gives with that? That should be me. Send this Lazarus guy down with some water. He's still my servant. And this prideful guilt and shame keeps him from entering the glory that he can see. C.S. Lewis's vision of hell very different than the hell and fire brimstone that I know some of you, including Verena, got, and so did I as a child. He says, hell is a place where you get everything you want. All you have to do is imagine it, and it's there. Except what you don't get is any connection with other people. And so you have this gorgeous mansion, and you're whining and dining yourself, and you have everything you want, but you've got a neighbor that's bugging you. And so you just imagine a new one, and it appears, and you never make a connection with anyone. And that the ultimate reality of hell is boredom. And in his allegory, he says this bored gentleman realized there's a bus trip that goes up to heaven. Let's check that out. I haven't been on a trip for a while. And so he goes. And as he walks into the heavenly kingdom, he realizes that the grass hurts his feet. That everything in heaven has so much substance that if you don't have substance, it will be an uncomfortable place for you. It will hurt you. There's another man on the bus that has a lizard on his shoulder. And the shoulder is his, or the lizard is his symbol of his addiction to sexuality. And he comes into this place and he realizes that if he gets rid of the lizard, he can stay. But he can't let go of the lizard and he gets back on the bus. Another man meets a business partner of his in this glorious kingdom that attracts him and scares the heck out of him because it's so substantial. And he says, you're here? And he remembers that this was a business partner who screwed him on earth. And he says, if you're here, to hell with this. And he gets back on the bus. Madeline Dangle calls this form of servanthood that Jesus is talking about daring to disturb the universe. Servanthood is daring to disturb the universe. Is this not what it means to reflect a new way of living?
So let us seek to go on disturbing the universe, even if no one important notices. Feel the divine pleasure of giving to receive. Receive freely, for God is with you in the trenches of life, telling you constantly that you are loved. And the good news is that while we're there in the trenches, we too are able to tell others in the trenches that they too are loved. Amen. <laughs>